Hello and welcome to the July 2012 IFRIC Update podcast. My name is Michael Stewart, Director of Implementation Activities at the ISB. I'm joined today by Martin Friedhoff and Patrick Laflau, staff at the IASB. The views that you'll hear in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily those of the IFRS Interpretations Committee or those of the International Accounting Standards Board. The formal decisions of both the Interpretations Committee and the Board are published in IFRIC Update and ASB Update and also in the Standards and Interpretations issued by the Board after full due process. There are three issues that we want to cover today in today's podcast update. And the first of those that we'll look at is a tentative agenda decision that the committee reached on a matter concerning the accounting for Greek government bonds, uh, to some extent a continuation of an issue that was discussed at the May meeting. What can you tell us about what the committee discussed this time? Yes, like I say, at the May meeting, the committee looked at a couple of questions. The most important one was, would the bonds under the Greek bond restructure that you held before the restructure be derecognized and the new bonds that you received as part of the restructure be the initial recognition of a new asset? And the tentative conclusion of the committee was, yes, it is the derecognition of the old bonds and a recognition of the new bonds. That then resulted in the question that we looked at at the July meeting, and that was how would the effective interest rate be determined, which you have to do on initial recognition, for these new assets, if the effective interest method applies to how they're classified. And in essence, the question was, would the requirement that is in IS-39 that tells you that if there is an incurred loss on initial recognition, you need to take into account those incurred losses and deduct them from the cash flows that you use to calibrate your effective interest rate to, should that be applied only to purchased assets or to purchased and originated assets alike? And the committee looked at um, several aspects. Ultimately, it was the wording, how it is used in IS-39, um, the committee also looked at what is the structure of the stand, so there is only one effective interest method, and then finally what the purpose of it is, and came to the conclusion tentatively that it applies to originated and purchased assets alike. So if you come to the conclusion that there is an incurred loss for an asset on initial recognition, it doesn't matter whether it was purchased or originated, you calibrate your effective interest rate in a way that the cash flows that you use include the deductions for your incurred losses. And that was the question that the committee tentatively answered, and they thought it was reasonably clear enough how to get there so that it shouldn't really become an agenda item. They also had a quick discussion that the circumstances might look unusual that you would originate an item that on origination has an incurred loss, but they also note that in the context of debt restructures, the originations are not as voluntary as in other situations. So you could actually have to forget about your normal underwriting standards and simply take what's on offer. Okay. So perhaps not a very common situation, but nevertheless one that would arise from time to time, particularly in the context of debt restructurings. Exactly. 
Great. Now, that is a tentative agenda decision that the Interpretations Committee has made, and that, together with another one that it issued concerning regulatory assets and liabilities, are both out for uh, consultation and comment, and the closing date for submission of comments on those two tentative agenda decisions is 17th of September 2012. And these two issues will be considered again at the November 2012 Interpretations Committee. The next issue that we want to talk about today relates to the accounting for the loss of control of a group of assets or a subsidiary between an investor and its associate or joint venture. Now, Patrick, what is the issue with, with, with this and what did the committee propose to do? Okay, maybe first we should... Uh summarize what is exactly the issue we are facing here. We are talking about the sale or contribution of, uh, for example, a subsidiary to a jointly controlled entity, a joint venture, or an associate in exchange for uh, an equity interest in that joint controlled entity or associate. Uh, in the past, the the board and the interpretations committee acknowledged that there is an inconsistency today in the IFRS literature uh, between IS 27 and SIG 13 because IS 27 requires for the loss of a control of a subsidiary to recognize a full gain, whereas SIG 13 uh, requires to recognize the gain only to the extent of the interest attributable to the other equity holders in the jointly controlled entity or the uh, associate. So uh, the interpretation committee acknowledged again that there is an inconsistency and wanted to deal with this uh, issue and asked the board whether they were uh, okay to consider further this issue. the board was uh, uh, discussed uh, uh, this issue and uh, asked the committee to consider further the issue. And uh, to do that, they suggested to the committee that they should uh, use the latest thinking of the board in the business combination project, uh, meaning that they should distinguish uh, contribution or sales of businesses versus contribution or sales of assets that do not constitute a business. Mm -hmm. In doing so, uh, the Interpretations Committee uh, decided to amend uh, IFRS 10 and IS 28 because this acknowledged inconsistency that we have between IS 27 and C13 will continue uh, because IFRS 10 is going to uh, replace IS-27 and SIG-13 was incorporated in IS-28 in 2011. So the committee decided to uh, amend IFRS-10 and IS-28 so that any contribution or sale of assets uh, between uh, an investor and an investee, whereas it's a joint venture or an associate, uh, should be accounted for under the rationale of SIG-13, meaning a partial gain or loss recognition, and any sale or contribution of businesses between an investor and an, inv- and an investee, uh, such as a joint venture or an associate, 
should be uh, accounted for in accordance with the rationale in IS-27, meaning that a full gain should be recognized in that case. And so what are the next steps now for this? So now the next that the committee agreed on this, the next step is going to be to present a paper uh, in September to the board and uh, propose some amendments to IFRS 10 and IS 28 revised in 2011. Okay. And this would be a separate amendment rather than annual improvements? Yes, this would be a narrow scope project, so uh, not included in annual, uh, in annual improvement project. Thank you. Thank you. And the final issue that we want to talk about today relates to IF7 and strength of cash flows. Now, over recent months, there's been a, a series of questions submitted to the Interpretations Committee that is considered uh, on the classification of cash flows between operating, investing, and financing uh, categories. And the committee had looked at each one of these in turn, had made various recommendations to the ISB about how to deal with these. But in looking at and thinking about a number of these, the ISB asked if the committee would perhaps just take, take a step back and look, take a broader look at the classification questions that were coming through and to see whether there was something more general that could be uh, done to address this series of questions that we were receiving on the standard. Now, in doing that, the committee at uh, the March 2012 meeting had identified and uh, agreed that really there is a primary principle within IS-7 uh, about the classification of cash flows, which uh, says that the cash flow should be classified in accordance with the nature of the activity in a manner that is most appropriate to the business of the entity. And so at this meeting, the committee considered a, a number of examples and the application, testing the application of that primary principle against those examples to see how uh, the applying the, the principle itself would, would uh, result in classification of those cash flows. Now, in doing that and in looking at those examples, the committee confirmed and agreed that, yes, that principle that it identified was the appropriate principle but it didn't agree with, in all cases, with the application of the principle to the examples. And so in order to take this issue forward, the committee has directed the staff to look at the way in which operating, investing and financing activities are each described and to see whether those descriptions should, could be made clearer such that the application of the principle would then be able to be made um, on a basis that would uh, be more consistent. In addition to that, the committee has asked the staff to look at the feedback that had been received previously through outreach on the financial statement presentation project over the last couple of years to see what we had learned through that could, that could also help in this particular project. And the results of both of those uh, pieces of work will be brought to the committee at a future meeting for further discussion by the committee. So that brings us to the end of the podcast for the July 2012 Interpretations Committee meeting. 
Details about the other issues that were discussed by the committee can be found in the July 2012 IFRIC update, which is available on the IASB website. And just a reminder that the views and opinions that you've heard in the podcast today are those of the presenters and not necessarily those of the Interpretations Committee or the IASB. Thank you for listening.